Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are joined by Andrew Leland. Andrew is a teacher, producer, editor, and writer who just released his first book. It's called The Country of the Blind, A Memoir at the End of Sight. The book is fantastic. It is one of my favorites of this year. It's part memoir about Andrew's journey with retinitis pigmentosa, RP, a degenerative eye disease that has made him slowly lose his vision over years. And it is also part investigative journalism into blind culture and community. Today, we talk about how Andrew balanced these two parts in his book, his own battle with ableism and writing about it, and the lack of writing on blindness. Remember, our August book club selection is You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty by Akweke Mezi. We will discuss the book with Sam Sanders on Wednesday, August 30th. Reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. Want more of The Stacks? Join The Stacks Pack. It is just $5 a month and you earn perks to support this show. You get access to our virtual book club. You can join the Stacks Pack Discord. We have bonus episodes for you. But the truth is there is no The Stacks without The Stacks Pack. So if you like the show, if you want to continue to hear it every single week, your support makes the show possible. Head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join. Shout out to our newest members of The Stacks Pack, Christy Hidalgo, Jasmine Gordovez, Laura Sackton, Natalie, Marie Mark, and our friends at Reparations Club Bookstore. Thank you all so much for joining the Stacks Pack. Thank you to the entire Stacks Pack for being you. I cannot say this enough. There is no Stacks without the Stacks Pack. So if you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join us. All right. Now it's time for my conversation with Andrew Leland. All right, everybody. I am so excited today. I am joined by Andrew Leland. He's the author of The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. And I have to tell you all, I picked up this book sort of randomly. I don't I don't really know. A friend of mine, um, you all know her, Greta from Nerdette Podcast, texted me the day I had picked it up and was like, you should read this. And I was like, Greta, I'm reading this. And <laughs> From there, I was just so pleased. I love the book so much. So, and I reached out to your team immediately and was like, Andrew has to come on. It's really good. We have to talk about it. So, with all that being said, will you tell us in about 30 seconds or so the general overview of the book? Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on and for what you just said about the book. I really appreciate it. What is the book? So it's it's a memoir, but unlike some memoirs, I I don't spend the whole book on my own experience. Or another way to put it is, you know, I use the experience of gradually losing vision as a motivation to go explore the world and do journalism and criticism and meet other people. So, you know, the part of the book that's about my loss of sight is relatively small compared to that loss being an engine for all of these trips I take to meet other blind people and try to really figure out what blindness is. So, it's a memoir that has a lot of energy directed towards discovery of things that I didn't know when I started writing the book, which I think is different than some memoirs where it's like this amazing thing happened to me and I'm going to write about it. This felt much more like this troubling, possibly amazing, but also difficult thing is happening to me and I'm going to now go on this journey to figure it out. 
Yeah, that kind of memoir, there there are many others I feel like that I it's one of my favorite genres of memoir is like memoir plus, but there's not mm. really like a name for it, right? Like I know. I, I think I called it personal history once and someone really liked that, but yeah. it it's it's the kind of book where it's like the author is at the center and they are telling you their story. And in doing so, they've also gone out to research other people or uh, talk to other experts who are in and around that same experience, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, in some ways, I think of it just as the essay form, because mm. I think going back to the beginning of that form, when when writers, you know, I think, don't make me try to talk in an academic way about the history of the essay. But, you know, at least since the Renaissance, I guess, if not earlier, you know, writers have been blending these forms where there's definitely some sort of his history, you know, capital H history and research. Right, and right. Uh, But then it's also very personal. And it's this sort of wandering exploration that I think is some of the most exciting writing I've read is, is in the essay form. So I'm definitely working in that tradition, I think. Yeah. And I, I do love essays. I just, I like the mix. Cause it's like, you have something to anchor to. You have a person that you're like, I'm with this person, but also I'm getting like a bigger scope. And I think that's ultimately what I really loved about your book is that it feels so intimate and mm. also like so broad and so mm. wide reaching. Um, but let me ask you where you got sort of the idea to write the book. So I was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa or RP, which is this degenerative retinal disease when I was a teenager. And back then, blindness felt very, very distant, um, mm -hmm. almost abstract. Like I, It's not that I didn't believe the doctors, but it just was like, what am I going to do with this information? Because they were kind of like, when you're middle-aged, it'll start to really accelerate. But until then, it's going to be this very slow decline. So for most of my life, it's been this sort of thing in the back of my head that has affected me, but never really been front and center. And that changed about 10 years ago when it kind of caught up with me. And mm -hmm. I I realized I had to start using a cane. You know, I had stopped driving by then, but I still was living my life very much as a sighted person. And really using the cane was what was what really changed things because all of a sudden the cane marks you it like outs you as blind right, and right. people from my family and friends to total strangers on the street just started treating me differently and that is when i got kind of you know a lot of a lot of feelings came up mm -hmm. you know among them being upset being sad but also kind of curious like whoa what is this weird new life that i'm living and so that's i think when i realized that there was something to explore and to investigate in a book I feel like you really talk about the cane in the book a lot and like the, the first time you use it, but then also the first time you use it around your wife, which I mm -hmm. thought was like a really interesting moment in the book. And I was thinking a lot about, you know, as a person, I, I'm a sighted person. I have no sight, you know, anything. I'm not disabled at all. Mm -hmm. And I, I was thinking about audience and how mm -hmm. you're sort of writing in my mind, sort of to like three and a half audiences, <laughs> right? It's like you have, you have a blind audience, people mm -hmm. who have had the same or similar experiences around their vision. Then you have sort of like it, the half is like half gen, like in the disabled community, you have half people who have been disabled maybe their whole life. And so you're speaking similarly to them. But then there's also this other disabled community that's maybe more recently disabled who mm. may or like on or declining or like moving towards disability. Like you are like headed, I guess not declining, but like moving towards something. Yeah. And then you also have the non-disabled community. And so yeah. I'm wondering how you were thinking about threading that needle because that sounds really broad. It sounds like basically everyone, but also it feels like a really specific book. And hmm. I felt like you were talking to me and I know hmm. Greta who's talked about losing her vision. She mm -hmm. has another, you know, um, s situation where she's losing her vision. She felt like you were talking to her. And so I'm just <laughs> wondering, like, how are you talking to all of us? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you know, I used to work as a magazine editor for The Believer, which is like a arts and culture monthly that really is like publishes essays in the way that we're talking about. You know, there'll be mm -hmm. kind of like an essay about a book, but then it'll also really be an essay about the writer's mother, you know, and it's sort of like this, this kind of approach to the essay form that we've been talking about. And I remember, you know, working with, with my mentors at that magazine, there was this really strong imperative to write for everyone and not be too highbrow, not be too lowbrow, not be too 
you know, anything and really kind of like try to find a voice that's that's accessible to everyone without making compromises. And like, I, I, I wish I could remember who first made this analogy, but one of my editors, it might've been Heidi Julevitz, talked about being at a dinner party. And like, let's just say the article is about, the, you know, the essay you're writing is about climate change. You know, and imagine at the dinner party on the right of you is like distinguished professor of, you know, geology and climatology and biology, whatever, <laughs> right, you know, like right. they, they know they know Expert. seven times as much as you. And then on the, on, on the other side of you is like a bright, sophomore in high school. And how are you going to have a conversation about climate change that is going to keep both of them engaged? And I, mm. I I believe like to my bones that it's that's not an impossible task. Like that is very possible. And the answer is like you can talk about these things in the way that the expert is going to like think to themselves like yeah that that is that's right. Like I like the way that they're talking about that. Not that they're like this is so boring. I know all this already because I think even if you're an expert right. like you love talking about this stuff. And then but you're not talking about it so narrowly or so, you know, jargon-filled uh, expert that the the high school student is going to be lost. And and I think that was just like hammered into me for so long working as an editor that when I started writing this book, that was kind of like just already in my head. Like, And the, the other thing is like, I'm in such a weird position now where I'm kind of both expert and novice too, because I, it's not like I was born blind. It's not like any of this stuff I can take for granted or really knew about. So in a way, I was in your position too at the beginning of the book. Like, I don't know what a screen reader is really, or like, what, what are the politics of the cane? Or, you know, all the questions that I bring up were genuinely new to me. And so I think I think probably that's the answer to your question is that like, I'm I'm figuring it out along the way. And so we can sort of learn about it together. And then the, the more challenging part was like how to not alienate those experts, but I think blindness just gets written about so little, mm. you know, that there was, it was, it was actually not that hard to, 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 you know, and I just, I tried to write it in a way that like that, you know, fictional biologist that we were just talking about, like in a way right. that they would recognize it and appreciate the way that I was talking about it. Right. Like just bringing up questions or like reframing things to think about it differently. Were you, were you thinking about this consciously or do you think that's sort of just in you as a writer at this point from your work? Not only was I thinking about it consciously, but my my editor, Emily Cunningham at Penguin Press was like, not yelling at me, but in my head, she was yelling at me. Uh, she's a very polite person, never raised her voice. Uh, but that was a big thing that we talked about a lot, which was, you know, I think I would get lost in the the blindness, disability, justice weeds. And she would kind of be like, this is all important stuff, Andrew, but like, you're losing the random reader who like doesn't care about any of this stuff. Like, we got to keep them engaged too. And I, I resented that at times because I was like so deep in it myself that I was like, what are you talking about? This is all important. You know, like mm. we've got to learn about like, you know, the 1970 legal battles over, uh, you know, accessibility, the origins of digital accessibility. And she's like, yes, like do that, but do it in a way that everybody's going to come along for the ride. So it was, it was, that was, I would say above anything else during the editorial and revision process, the, the trickiest balance to strike between both the sort of personal narrative and the, the reported stuff, but also just like how to not get so in the weeds, but still write a book that is really specific. Well, I think a lot about like, you know, I'm I'm a black woman and I think a lot about black authors that I've spoken to have talked about like writing for us, like writing mm. for black people. And I'm wondering if you were feeling like some obligation for writing for the blind community or some of some sense of like, if I want to do right by these people first or, mm. or any of that sort of feeling. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I don't know. After I wrote the book, I read a, a collection of essays called Who Will Pay Reparations on Our Soul by oh, yeah. Jesse McCarthy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, it's not like the first time I encountered the phrase black thought, but like I remember when I read, I think in his introduction, like just him, you know, and that book is about black thought in a way. Like it's, it's like sort of like identifying this black intellectual tradition and cultural tradition and like really kind of like making what I found to be a really exciting intervention into like that history. And when I read that, I was kind of like, huh, what is blind thought? And like, am I identifying, am I doing a similar project to what he was doing, but, but in terms of blindness. And I think there's been a lot more writing about, about race than there has been about disability. I think for the, the we could have a conversation about why that is. <laughs> uh, but, you know, in some ways I felt like it was easier to, to do right by the blind readers because there just has been so little attention paid to blind thought. And even to the point where the idea of blind thought 
you know, it, it sounds almost like a like an oxymoron, right? Because like right. we use the, the figure of blindness as ignorance. So like the idea of, of, of saying like, ah, oh, he's a really blind thinker or something like, he's a great example of blind thought. It almost sounds like an insult. And so I feel mm. like in some ways it was really thrilling to me to try to take a swing at like defining that. And I feel like, you know, the people I met, these these really like blind geniuses and not just like geniuses who happen to be blind, but I think really pushing towards this idea that that I found like in Jesse McCarthy's book that like, these thinkers are brilliant in their blackness, like because like it, it burrowing into that that tradition and that identity and that experience. And I think I found something analogous in the world of blindness. I, I really love that. Um, something that I, I mean, I said at this at the top. I think that this book is very intimate. I think that you do a great job of getting very vulnerable, and I think that you share with us some of your personal thoughts around, you know, your journey towards blindness that I think could, I mean, I think you say this is, could easily be considered ableist, right? And I, and I think one of the things that I was really curious about was how did you approach publicly grappling with some of your own ableism? Hmm. Because I know that, I know that that's like a really challenging thing to admit. And, and it's not even that you admit it, it's that you're kind of working through it as we're going. Hmm. So I'm wondering, like, how did, how did you feel about putting a lot of this stuff to paper? Did you think about taking any of it out? What was that like for you? Yeah. Um, that was hard. I, you know, I definitely, it definitely, that, 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 that I think what you've identified was the riskiest feeling part of the book. Um, mm. that, and maybe writing about my, my marriage, I guess would be <laughs> for a yeah. different reason, the risky, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I, it just felt so important, you know, for all the risk and all the challenge of, of kind of, getting it on the page in a way that felt authentic and also not that wasn't going to cause harm to anybody you know but 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 that it felt worth the risk because in a way I wanted the reader I think there's a risk of being too smart or too good as a writer you know or like presenting oneself in this sort of disingenuous way be like well yes. I've thought this all the way through and this is the right opinion to have. And now I'm going to like perfectly express that opinion. And it kind of like does a disservice to the reader because then you read it and you're sort of like, oh, like that's a, that's, how do I get there? And the, you kind of like take the scaffolding away and there's no bridge for the reader to get there. It's just like, right. oh, I'm enlightened. And like, hopefully after reading my book, you are too. But there's like a little like smiling at you from the closed uh, <laughs> turret up, up above. And so I felt like really being messy and vulnerable in that way and saying like, the first time I met, a blind guy with a developmental disability, like I was, I was sort of confused about what he was doing at the blindness convention because I was like, I thought blindness was this like cool, like intellectual friendly disease. And this guy had an intellectual disability and it like really messed with my head. And, you know, that, that felt, that felt borderline offensive to like put talk in those terms. But also I felt like if I was having that experience, I could make the assumption that like a lot of readers would have also had that feeling. Um, cause I think it's a common feeling for non-disabled people the first time, or even, you know, the hundredth time that you're around somebody with a disability, there is the feeling of alienation or discomfort sometimes. And, you know, I felt it around blindness itself. And so there's this, um, it just felt important to kind of leave the reader on the hook the way, like not let myself off the hook, but also not let the reader off the hook. And I think, yeah, pushing that part of it felt like it would give the book a little more of a impact on the reader that I wanted it to have and an impact on myself. I mean, really like it's another example of me with the reader going through the journey together, I think. And you talk about your son as well, because your RP is genetic and you know, you, you were doing genetic testing and maybe considering finding out about your son. And I think that like, it gets into a really interesting place about, you know, what can you, Andrew, person who's living with RP, et cetera, handle versus what do you want for your child? And mm -hmm. like, what does that look like? And I, and we've talked about this a lot on this podcast because it's come up in other books that we've read and talked about. Um, but I'm wondering sort of how you grappled with that and including that part in the story mm. as well, because that brings your son in into this in a way that maybe is more challenging than, you know, bringing yourself into it. These are such good and hard questions. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's really fun. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, more than anything else in the book, the fact that 
we haven't talked to Oscar about the fact that this is an inherited disease. You know, that's if that that feels the weirdest to me that like it's in this book that's now in the world, but it's oh. not something that we've talked about at home. How old is he? He's 10. Okay. And you know, he's a bright 10-year-old who if he wanted to could like go grab a copy from the other room and read it right now and find that part and he will eventually. And you know, it's not like we're we're never going to tell him that there's that possibility, but you know, the the the, the conversation that Lily and I had now was what would it do for him to right. to know that there's a possibility or even to know that you know if she did get tested and he he had it like how would that change his life and it didn't seem like it would do him any any favors you know like like what would knowing now do as a 10 year old like it's not like he's like i want to be an air force pilot and we're like well no you can't think about that cuz you have rp like it just it just i wanted to i want him to have a normal childhood not that there's anything wrong with having a blind childhood but he he's that's not what's happening his vision is fine at the moment so I don't know if that answers your question, but th- I think another thing that you were br- you were kind of getting at was um, the way that it's 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 relatively easy for me to kind of get excited about blind thought and all these like kind of like mm-hmm. mind expanding possibilities. But then when I think about the possibility of him having it, having RP, it my attitude shifts, and there is a, almost like a hypocrisy to that. I don't think I'm a hypocrite, but it's confusing and it's hard and. Um, it kind of gets down to this paradox of of disability in some ways, I think, where it's it's completely unacceptable the way that disability is stigmatized and that people are made to feel like they don't belong and are inherently lesser than other people. At the same time, like it's a fallacy to say that disability is an entirely neutral characteristic and that doesn't cause pain and um like it wouldn't be extremely convenient to be able to see, right? Uh, like like blindness is very inconvenient. And so it's sort of hard to hold both of those things at once. And it's interesting, like thinking about the analogies between disability and other marginalized identities, you know, because I think with race in some ways, like, and, you know, and I write a little bit about this, but like, yeah. you know, like using the example of gender, let's say, you know, it's obvious that like being a woman is like, not a disadvantage inherently, right? It's like like the characteristics of being a woman are just as wonderful as the characteristics of being a man. It's not like I there's see. like some inherent right. problem there. But disability, even though I think there's a degree to which that's true, there's also this very confusing reality, which is that like you do have sometimes chronic pain, right? That's like pain, it's you can't spin pain, right? Pain right. is pain. Or there's um yeah, like like things are just going to be more difficult. Like as a blind person in the world, you're going to need to use some tools. And and there's this idea of the social model of disability where, you know, you can make the argument that it's actually the way the world is built that's the problem, not the disability itself. But all that does, I, I say all this just to sort of explain how I can have that kind of duality of thinking where on the one hand, like I'm cool with my blindness and I recognize the ways that it is actually enriching my life. And then I can turn around and say, but I hope Oscar doesn't have RP. Right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then come back and talk about accommodations, which is sort of what where we're headed, I think, naturally. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. 
If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. All right. We're back. Uh, I said we're going to talk about accommodations. I think for me as a non-disabled person, one of the things that really, really, really landed with me was this idea of tools and accommodations for disabled people. Obviously, specifically, we're talking about blind people or people with vision loss. I think what you get at it the book and in the book and you say it in a lot of different ways but one of the ways that like really popped out of my head is that this idea that ease of something or being something being easy doesn't say anything about the value of a person or like it doesn't say anything about the goodness or the smartness or whatever it just means that something is like easier for one person than another right so like mm. it's easier for me to pick up a copy of a book and read it without glasses than it is for you but mm-hmm. for you with the right tools with the right glasses or the right audio reader, whatever, you and I can do the same things. And I think that I had never really thought about accommodations in that way. Mm. Like, I don't don't know what I, I don't know what exactly I thought, but I, I just think like most people were in our own world and we're in our, and we experience the world in our own way. And it's so often like we don't notice what a little accommodation can do or like I just and I know that that's like deeply ableist and I know it's so fucked up and I know it's just the system <laughs> and the world that we live in yeah um but the way that you write about this stuff and, and there's a chapter all about like these inventions and these um discoveries and these creations and this movement towards products and things that we use all people use in their everyday life that were started, you know, by disability activists and dis- people with disabilities, like the curb and like the mm-hmm. yellow bumps on the mm-hmm. curb and like all that mm-hmm. stuff. And so I don't know, there's not really a question. Yeah, yeah. But I just, it was so like, aha, light bulb moment for me of like, I think you say there's a part where you're like, you know, a tool is a tool. Like if you need to drive a car to go a hundred miles versus walk, it doesn't mean that you're disabled. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you, but like the car is going to help you do that faster, easier with less discomfort. Like, and that is what a cane can be for a blind person, or that is what, you know, whatever accommodation can be for whatever kind of person. And I just, I, I don't know. I just am so grateful for that. And I guess, Maybe the question is like, why are we thinking about accommodations wrong? Mm, God, that is such a good question. Um, thank you so much for this reading of my book. It's really you are just making me so happy right now. Oh, God. Uh, it's like, <laughs> I loved it. I told you I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you no, know, I mean I had the exact same experience. I think, and I think I think it's just it's like about a decentering of the non-disabled experience. You know, and I think it's I think it's just a very human thing to think like, okay, there is like a normal, right? And the normal is you read books with your eyes, you walk, you know, you 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 travel with your legs, you listen to conversations with your ears, and as soon as you try to think outside of that yes. paradigm where you're like, oh, people can talk with their hands, uh, like a sign language, that's like, you know, uh it, it it's 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 troubling, and it's like you know you're you're like the princess and the pea, and there's like oh, what's this uh, uncomfortable thing happening here? That's not right, right. and people right. get very very invested in it, and and you know, and I think I think part of the shift that I had to to come around to is this idea of accommodation, not as like doing a favor for somebody or like you know this like charity model, but really the idea that like if you're gonna if you really are gonna put your money where your mouth is and treat people with dignity and equality, uh, you know, and, and include everyone, then you do have to reframe some of these ideas around what reading is or what speaking is or what um, access is. And like the the president of the National Federation of the Blind, I was interviewing him once and, uh, you know, they've got this giant, I think it's a former bank in Baltimore that's their headquarters. I haven't actually been there, but, um, you know, he made the point to me, like, we pay a pretty sizable electricity bill every month to keep the lights on in here. Those lights aren't for us. We're accommodating the sighted mm. people who come visit us. You know, and I mean that's 
it's like he's making that point for effect, but it's also true. Like for most people who work there, like they don't need the lights on, but they they pay for them to be on because sighted people are visiting all the time or coming. There are sighted employees. And so I think when you reframe things like that, it, it becomes a very different proposition to say like, well, what does inclusion mean? And it's not like, oh, well, let's like be good people and pay an electricity bill to have the lights on. You know, it's like you can just sort of think about all accommodations in that way. Like it's important to us for all of our students to be able to get the course materials on the first day of class instead of having the blind ones get the books transcribed three months after class has started and have to completely hustle to catch up, which is a very common experience for mm. blind students. You know, like like what what would it take? And so this is, I think, the important thing about about accessibility that I think the world is is moving towards, but but slowly. Um, yeah, yeah. I feel like you know privilege is such like a buzzword recently. And I think mm. like in thinking about accommodations and in thinking about like this more inclusive model, not only was it like a reminder of my privilege, but also it was a reminder that like this idea of disability justice is just that it's not a favor. Like it really is like it is the justice that's owed to people just because they are people. And like, if you believe that everyone deserves the things that they need in life, whether that's food, water, healthcare, that also includes access to books. That also includes access to people who can speak sign language if that's what you need or wheelchair ramps or chairs that are comfortable or whatever the fuck that it is that you need. Like all of that is truly justice. And I think that like I understood that kind of like in a heady way or like in a way that's like, I believe all people. But I think in reading your book, it really landed with me that like, like you're saying, it's not charity. It's not like a favor. I'm not doing you a favor by like having an interpreter or whatever, like that, that if I want to be a person who is who makes the world accessible to all people around me, which is what I want to do. It's like I read these books. I want to be able to talk about them in a way that people who haven't read them can understand what's in them, et cetera. Like yeah. I have like that there's that that work as well. And it goes with everything. And I, I don't know, it just again, just really like made a huge impact on just the way that I look at the world. And this is really small, but I think my first sort of real glimpse into this, I have three and a half year old twins. Mm. And um, when you have twins more than a singleton, you rely on a stroller a lot. Mm. And I live in Los Angeles and there are a lot of streets here that don't have curbs Mm. to go down and with a double cut. Yeah. Yeah. To go down and with a double stroller. And I remember getting so mad and being like, well, what if I was in a fucking wheelchair? Yeah. Like I can kind of lift the stroller up and down or whatever. And this was like during COVID. So it was Mm. like, all I was doing was walking around outside. We couldn't do indoor stuff. And I just remember getting so mad and being like, what if I was in a wheelchair? Like, what if I couldn't lift up their stroller? And that was sort of like the first real moment of me being like, oh, this isn't like a nice thing to do for people. But your book really, I just... It hammered it home for me. I can't get off the point, but it just uh, so um, it makes me so happy. I mean, I, you know, I think I've kind of beaten myself up a little bit about like, you know, because I think the most hardcore dis- disabled activists that I know tend to be people who have been disabled their whole lives. And it makes sense that, um, right, that, you know, you've, I mean, just the experience of going through school, <sighs> getting an education as a disabled person, I mean, it just pushes you right up against it over and over again, kind of on every level. And, you know, I am, I have led this life of immense privilege and it's only, and I'm just sort of like, just getting into the shallow end of experiencing, you know, um, inaccessible websites or, you know, not having materials in an accessible format when I'm participating in a workshop or whatever, you know, it's just that I'm just the shallow, shallow end. Um, but in some ways, like hearing you talk about your experience of reading it, I think it's kind of like the conversation about me, including my ableism, where like it might be a powerful experience to hear my perspective where I'm kind of less initiated and I'm still figuring this stuff out as I mm-hmm. go too. Um, because it is like I, you know, over the course of writing the book, I had to figure out like what accessibility even means. And and I feel like your experience with your with your stroller is really powerful because I think if you look at the sort of non-disabled experience, we just like as a society, I feel like there's such a tendency to be like, 
you know, like 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 if you if you were on an app, like if you were on an app and you were trying to buy something and the checkout button was unlabeled and you like couldn't check out, mm. you would lose your mind. You know, people freak out and they're writing yeah. letters. You know, the, the reality <laughs> is like as a disabled person, as a blind person on the internet, that's like whatever. 60% of websites sometimes, right? right? And like they just deal with it. And so I think if you try to if you flip it and have that idea like the like the idea of paying for the lights in the in the blindness center or experiencing the lack of a curb cut as somebody with a stroller and imagining with a wheelchair, uh it's just unacceptable. Like it's unacceptable to have a website that you need to access your tax info and the there's no checkout, you know, there's no download button. And uh, yeah, so I think I think expanding that experience from like an inconvenient thing that sometimes happens to you that pisses you off as a non-disabled person and just realizing that like that is the daily experience of people living in an accessible world with disabilities. Right. And like also the idea that like it wouldn't that if the world was more accessible for disabled people, it would also be more accessible for everyone. Like it's totally. not as if these things are mutually exclusive. It's not as if like, oh, this checkout button exists. It means that it won't exist for someone else. It's not a zero sum situation. Like I think when we foster communities that are inclusive for all people, like only good things come from that. Like people are able to be more creative, more comfortable. They're able to learn, they're able to express themselves, all the things that allegedly make a better society, right? hundred <laughs> percent. Like- yeah. I mean, th- this is the principle of universal design where you design for the edge cases, the sort of the outliers that we so often forget. And when you do the product, whether it's a sidewalk with a with a curb so that people with strollers, people with, with carts, um, or, you know, any number of other technologies that you could point to from, um, like the jacuzzi was was oh, the typewriters really like in some ways the, the I write about the the internet itself uh, grew out of this technology that's designed for the edge case designed for for people with disabilities and it turns out to really benefit everyone and yeah you just there's so many examples of that audiobooks yeah the first audiobooks the first LPs you know when they were trying to cram an entire book onto a record you know the first records were they only had like <laughs> a couple of minutes per side and so those first long playing records were developed in consultation with the American Foundation of the Blind. And then, yeah. So like blind people were actually the first people to listen to LPs. And then then it hit the mainstream a couple of years later. Speaking of audiobooks, <laughs> I listened to your book on audio, some of it. Oh, cool. And I love, I love an audiobook. And I'm wondering if you felt any pressure or like any responsibility in narrating your audiobook, knowing that you know, you're writing this book towards blind people and that that's probably a way that many people will consume your book. Was there mm. any like thing that you were thinking about as far as performance or anything like that? I mean, the first thing I felt, and this is like the thing I feel a lot is guilt that I was able to read it visually, you know? So mm. I, it was, it was a struggle. I, I blew the text up to basically could see half a sentence at a time on my screen and, you know, inverted the colors and, then I, when I got to the studio, they were like, we can hear you scrolling, so you can't scroll while you read. So it'd have to be like, <laughs> once upon a time, scroll, scroll. There was a dog, you know, and that they, then they cut out all those pauses. So I'm glad to hear that you read it. and um, I didn't hear a Didn't pause. hear any weird cuts no, or anything. No. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, that book is Frankenstein, I think, more than many audiobooks. But, you know, uh, when I talk to a lot of blind people, people who have lost their vision as adults, like the, the, the loss of the ability to read out loud is something that people often really feel and it's hard to get braille your braille skills up to the point where you can read aloud that fluidly unless you learned it as a kid and that's something I'm working on so I think you know there was a there was a odd feeling of like is and also there was thoughts about like is this going to be the last book that I'm going to be able to read aloud you know because it was Mm. like it felt like I was pushing right up to the edge of like next time this is not going to be a thing I have a friend Leona Godin who wrote a great book called their plant eyes. It's similar territory to what I'm doing. Um, And she um, lost her ability to read visually years ago. And so she did what she called the Cyrano method where like, you know, in Cyrano de Bergerac, where he's Mm -hmm. like, uh, it's sort of a Romeo and Juliet thing where he's like talking to giving the romantic speech that his friend is whispering into his ear. So she just had her screen reader reading her book. And then she would somehow figure out how to speak and listen at the same time. All to say that like, yeah, the, the, the prevailing feeling was just one of like a lot of, a lot of mixed up feelings uh, mm-hmm. doing the audiobook because of that relationship with the printed word that I was both sort of like saying goodbye to, but also really immersing in. Yeah. Uh, it was intense. I love the audiobook. I thought you did a great job, actually. Um, Thanks. I want to talk a little bit about the politics of mm. blindness because there's sort of these two warring factions in the blind 
community. One is um, blind people can do anything they want and we don't need your help and let us do our own shit and fuck you. Mm-hmm. And then the mm-hmm. other one is sort of like, we're blind and you need to take care of us, mm-hmm. sort of the mm-hmm. vibe that I got. Um mm-hmm. And the you sort of being non-disabled people in both cases, right? It's sort of both groups sort of feel like they're speaking to, you know, I think they are. They're speaking to politicians or speaking to non-disabled people, non-blind people, at least. Mm -hmm. Um, How how much did you know about sort of the politics and the lobbying and all of that stuff around blindness? Were, Were there surprises for you? What do you what's your takeaway? What are what what were your thoughts? Yeah. It was fascinating. I had no idea about any of it. It was just, there's like this alphabet soup. It's, I mean, it's kind of any subject that you get into. Mm-hmm, People, mm-hmm. You, know, you meet an expert and they're like, well, the PPQ and the ZRH, you know, and yeah. you're like, oh, what, what are these things? <laughs> you know, and it was like that with blindness. It's like NFB versus ACB versus AFB. And it took me a while to like, you know, for those those acronyms to start to mean anything. And I think one of the big divides that I encountered, I think you articulated it really well, which is, it's and it comes back to this idea of accommodation and, and really like, like what how you define blindness. And and not, not, I don't mean that in the sense of like, you know, less than 20 degrees of your visual field, you're legally blind, but more like, is it a neutral characteristic or does it, does it actually function as a handicap or a disability? And yeah, the NFB are hardcore historically taking the position that it's a neutral characteristic. You know, one of the, one of their presidents, who's a sort of like celebrated guy in blind history, Kenneth Jernigan, you know, he has this this seminal banquet speech that he delivered at a, one of their conventions: "Blindness, handicap, or characteristic." Or another title that he published it under was like "Blindness: A Living or a Dying," and mm. it was this real forceful rejection of a sighted worker for the blind named Father Thomas J. Carroll, who wrote this very influential book when the first line was "Blindness is a dying." You know, and his his whole theory was, which even if they wouldn't maybe put it in such stark terms, I think you find it a lot of workers for the blind and places that sort of serve blind people, which is that like, you're going through this very traumatic event, the sighted person is lost to to you. And now you have to sort of reinvent yourself as a blind person. And Jernigan and the NFB really push back hard against that. And they say like, I'm not dead. Uh, you know, there's no, there's no trauma. There's no loss here. Like I'm just a blind person. And yeah, like I have, like you were saying, you know, I got to read with my fingers instead of my eyes, but that's an alternative technique. And once you figure out your alternative techniques, you're good. And that idea is so powerful i think it's so important and so like i think i went through a little bit of like a you know the the rocking boat that sort of like was tipping one way or another and then mm-hmm. like by the end of the book had maybe settled a little bit but i think that's a really important idea i also think that when you're just losing your vision it's tough to hold hold on to that extremity because there right. is grief and there is grieving that has to happen when you lose vision. Maybe not if you're born blind, but for those of us who have to go through it after living a lifetime with with sight, like so so I think where I landed in the end was like the, that political idea of blindness is incidental. It's just like doesn't define me. I can live the life I want. I still think that that's brilliant and crucial. But I also think that that organization, the NFB and just more broadly like that philosophy does leave out the experience of trauma and the experience of pain and loss and grief that is not every blind person's experience, but that I think it's important to hold space for because there are a lot of blind people who have been through trauma and not just the trauma of blindness, but the trauma that I think is sort of associated with it, where whether it's like violence of different, you know, sexual violence or, or, um, you know, the experience of poverty or, you know, abuse in all different ways. So, that's something that the NFB has really been explicitly wrestling with. And there's been these sort of series of scandals and um, and sort of issues that they're going through. But yeah, I think philosophically, I ended up with a sort of in-between mode where like you have to acknowledge the grief, but then you can sort of move past it into this experience of more uh, blindness being an incidental thing. And then the last thing I'll say about it is that getting back to this idea of like blind thought, you know, if blindness is totally incidental, then I think you do lose some of that feeling of like, it's it's awesomeness and it's power and like the reality yeah. it's sort of it as a positive characteristic too. So yeah. I'm kind of like triangulating in there and I'm and it's still a, a work in progress for me thinking through these things. Well, I think that if it's a uh, you know just a what what what's the phrase but characteristic a neutral neutral characteristic then you also don't have such thing as blind thought. If it mm. is a neutral characteristic, right. then how could you have a 
community perspective, et cetera, that is centered on this thing. Like a neutral characteristic is brown hair. And I don't really have like brown hair thoughts, right? Like, <laughs> like if that's not like a part of my identity that I really even claim. So I think like, yeah. I, and I don't, and I don't think that like, I mean, I think also a par- part of me feels this way because I am black yeah, and I am a woman and I feel like being a woman is a neutral characteristic on its face, but so is being black. But in society, it is not. In America, right. it is not. So like, yes, right. maybe being blind is a neutral characteristic if you are blind in a vacuum, but you're not. You're blind right. in the United States or you're blind wherever you are in yes. with, with what, however much money you have and all of these things that make it possible to have something like blind thought or mm. blind community. When you So in the book, in the very, 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 very beginning, you're sort of like, I'm just going to set off on my adventure to find <laughs> blind community, like yeah. like how there's deaf community. And you talk mm. about how like the deaf community, because they have language, there's something there that's sort of like easier to identify as deaf community. Yeah. Um, because so much of humanity is based around language and there mm. isn't like blind language in the same way that there's sign language. Right. Did you feel like you found blind culture, blind, I guess not blind community, excuse me, I should have been saying blind culture this whole time. Do Mm. you feel like you found blind culture? Did you, were you sure that you would find blind culture if you did find it? Or did Mm. you think it was more like community people together with shared experience? Or do you, you know, I guess those words are similar, but they're different, right? Culture and community. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think I did. And I, but then I think, as with all of these things, I kind of, I went, I pendulumed all over the place. So I think I found a really strong blind community and a blind culture. And I think there are things I could, I could point you towards that are hallmarks of blind culture. That said, I also think one of the tricky things about disability, because it's not something that you're necessarily born with, that your parents, you know, passed along to you, but it could be acquired. And and with blindness in particular, I think the majority of blind people don't even identify as blind because they're like 80 years old and they're sort of in denial and they're just sort of like hanging on to the little scrap of vision they have and, you know, wouldn't ever dream of calling themselves blind, resist like blind services and are really struggling, you know? And so I think if I, if I include that whole population in what I'm thinking of as a community, you know, they're, they're not a part of the community. I think culturally they might end up touching on some of the things that I associate with blind culture just by necessity. I mean, and the, and the, the surprising thing about blind culture that I found is that at first I thought that like blind techies were kind of like a subculture, just like blind mm-hmm. skateboarders or blind right. birders. But like, because the challenge of blindness is so bound up with access to information, whether it's books or the internet or signs in a, in a space, um, you know, if we think about like information technology, like living in this sort of like super information age, by necessity, blind people have to become these like hardcore hackers. And it's not just like the ones who know co- coding languages. Like it's it's kind of everybody, including the 80-year-old who's just like trying to figure out a way to keep doing the crossword every week. <laughs> um, so like, I, I gotta say, like when I think about blind culture, the one thing that every blind person I know has in common is that they're just like, they're not extremely online in the way that that expression, but I kind of want to say that like, they're just, they are like, they are tinkerers and they are hackers. Mm. And they, like, there's a really lovely blind artist named Emily Gassio, who I talked to about her work. And she, she said that when she thinks about blindness, she thinks about problem solving. And, Mm. you know, I think that's really connected to this, this sort of technological, this relationship to technology that all blind people have to have because they, they rely on it to access basic information that we all need to get through our lives. I have to ask you a really weird, random, small question, but it's <laughs> pertinent to my life because I'm yeah. from Oakland, California, and I feel like a lot of the people in this book are in the Bay Area. Mm. Is there a large blind community in the Bay Area, or is that just a place that you went and did a lot of work, and so a lot of the voices that we hear from are from there? I'm so glad you picked up on that. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of blind people in the Bay Area, and I think relatedly, or, or more importantly, there's there's a really rich history of blind activity there. Okay. And like going back well before, you know, like the sort of, I think it's pretty well known, like if you watch the movie Crip Camp, which mm-hmm. I, I highly recommend, you know, like the, the, the disability rights movement was born in the Bay Area 
in the in the seventies and late sixties, you know, and there's the famous sit in at the um at the building in, in San Francisco, the protesting Department of Health, Education and Welfare and all that. But you know, blind people were involved in that. But but going back into the 19th century with the California School for the Blind, you know, like the the organized blind movement, like the sort of first groups in the U.S. that said enough of the paternalistic sighted teachers who are telling us that we can't go to college or we can't do right. things for ourselves. Like enough of that, we're going to organize, and there's only blind people allowed in this organization. And like, you know, and real like what you would associate with like the civil rights movement. You know, that's that starts going back into like the. 1910s, 1920s in Oakland, in Berkeley. So I think, you know, when you've got a history like that and institutions like that, I think there is just going to be a draw, a draw and a, and a continuity so that now you have places like the San Francisco Lighthouse in downtown San Francisco that is one of the most progressive and innovative, like blindness citadels in the country. And it's not like Gallaudet, which is like the, you know, first school. fully deaf centric yeah. uh, school in, in DC, but it's, you know, it's it's getting there. It's close. I mean, it's not close at all, but it's it's a step in the right direction. And yeah, right I think on. if there was, if I had to point to anywhere in the country that had that, I mean, certainly like Baltimore with the NFB and their that giant fortress, but uh, the Bay Area just has a really incredible history. And you know, talking about technology too, like yeah, if you think about disability and like what it combines, there is like this sort of radical politics of like having to fight against these institutions that are designed that that are that are oppressing them, and this like. Necessary obsession with technology, and mm-hmm. so like the Bay has got all of that in a crucible. So it kind of makes sense that that blindness would be so active there. Oh, I'm a proud Oaklander, so that makes me happy <laughs> to hear. I, you know, like sometimes you're reading and you and because of your own life, you can't pick up like little tiny things. But yeah. I was like, am I making this up, or is everybody? here in the Bay Area, like (laughs) hanging out. Um, Totally. Let me ask you about how you write. How many hours a day? How often? Music or no? Are you in Mm. your house? Do you go out? Um, This part's important. Are there snacks and beverages? Mm. Rituals, candles, yoga? Like, how do you do it? Yeah. Um, And I guess for you also, like, how do you read back? Are you, do you blow everything up on a big screen? Are you listening back? Like, how does Mm -hmm. that work for you? That changed during the writing process in a way that I think if I was doing anything other than writing a book about blindness would have given me a nervous breakdown because it was so stressful to have to like radically. And I'm not just talking about like, I usually do yoga before I write, but then I broke my ankle. So I couldn't like, this was like a fundamental reorientation to how I connect to language, but it was also crucial and I'm into it now. But basically (laughs) giant external monitor white text on a black screen font is in like 22 point font, but then also like cranked up to like 150% or something. So the letters are gigantic. And over the course of writing the book, I started using text to speech. So I'm listening to a robot, uh, read them back to me. And I got much faster with that. And now that, so in the beginning that felt weird and I was just like experimentally trying it by the end of the book. Um, I, 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 a hundred percent of the time the robot was talking to me. So I was sort of combo. Like sometimes I would just like be like, okay, I'm going to reread this entire chapter. And then my eyes are wandering. But then if I'm like, was that a semicolon? You know, then I'm looking back and it's sort of a combination Mm -hmm. of looking and listening. I started writing the book in like the end of 2019 or thereabouts. Um, And so then when the pen, when lockdown started and my kid basically all school and childcare was vaporized, um, Mm -hmm. I started waking up at five in the morning to write because like that was the only time that felt protected and that became a pretty ingrained habit. And so even like this morning I woke up at five, even though I'm not like on deadline or anything. Um, But that just became so powerful that, you know, even if there was just like a, you know, by the time he got up at like seven, if the rest of my day was just spent like homeschooling or going for a walk or making dinner, like at least I had that sacred two hours of, of writing but no music because I'm listening, you know, so I've got to listen to the the thing. And I, but I never really could, I, I, I like music too much. So if something's on, I just start thinking about that, the music. Um, beverages. beverages. I have a weird, very neurotic thing where a friend of mine once told me that, and he's a writer. So I feel like there's like extra juice in, in his, okay. uh, <laughs> uh, like, I like, I really, uh, he's like a mentor of mine, even though he's my friend. Um, if you drink coffee every other day, 
you you don't get addicted for one, you know, like you can live without it, but also like its effects are more powerful. So I'm like very, very intense about like, okay, today's the day I'm like going to start this new chapter. So that's a coffee day, but then I can't do it the next day. So, you know, I'm like constantly like building this like Tetris minefield for myself of like when I get to drink coffee and when I do, it's wonderful. And But other than that, I drink an, uh, a tremendous amount of tea. What kind of tea? Okay. I really like black tea, but my dad turned me on to this tea that's like a fermented Chinese tea called pu'er. Okay. It's very malty and borderline stinky. I would say it's like the kimchi of tea. It doesn't smell like kimchi, but it's like got that like funkiness. Really potent. Okay. Yeah. And I think in China, like you don't steep it as long as bonkers Americans do, but I like Mm -hmm. to just steep it a lot and it okay. <laughs> the thing i found about it is like you can really get yourself wired on it but not in the like teeth grinding up all okay. night like hair pulling way that if you drink too much coffee you get or like you're st- sick to your stomach it's got it's like somehow just a different chemical compound so you can like really blast things out but not with with fewer adverse effects and do you drink your tea just plain no milk no sugar I love how deep we're going on tea I this. love tea I love tea most people <laughs> talk about coffee on the show so anytime someone says tea i'm like say more I like black tea um, with milk or a milk alternative. Uh, Pu'er, it doesn't taste good. Like I like black tea with a little sweetness. So like if mm-hmm. there's like a, a sweetened oat milk or something, that's that's okay. the best or a cow milk. But the um, the pu'er is not as good with the sweetness because you you're kind of messing with that malty okay. funkiness. So I'm gonna I, try I some of this. I'm gonna flash of unsweetened almond milk, but I think just okay. black it's good. I love how many different milk do you drink. I, I'm really impressed. I feel like most people have like a uh, milk that they like. It's like, I'm an almond milk. I'm a soy. I'm an oat. I personally am a cow milk gal. But yeah. I feel like I don't hear a lot of people talking about like multiple milk options for beverages. I don't know how it happened, but our household has become oat and almond. And I feel like I put the oat, the almond, the unsweetened almond in the puer. I put the oat in the black and the coffee. This is, yeah, I told this you this part rails. was important. I told yeah. you. I gave you a warning. Um, okay. I think that I know who your grandfather is? You'd probably do if you read the book. I, I'd i say it. Do you say his I, name? I think I say you his, say his play. Oh, really? I don't say his name? I think you say I, Brighton I say Beach name. Memoirs. I say it in a tortured way, though, because I've always been slightly tortured about like sharing that, but it's in there. You, It's public. I, I Well, I was laughing because I was listening to that part, and I'm like, in my kitchen cooking, doing things, and then you're like, my grandfather, who's a writer, and wrote about you know Jewish experience, mm. blah, blah, and I'm like, oh, cool, his grandfather's a writer, and then you're like, in his play, Brighton Beach Memoir, and I'm like, this man <laughs> is trying to act like his grandfather isn't fucking Neil Simon, <laughs> and so then I'm like trying to Google you, but I'm like cooking, so I'm like, fuck it, I'll get back to it later, but I took yeah. a note, and then when I was preparing for this interview, I was like, I have to ask him if that's yeah. actually his grandfather, if I was tripping. Nope. No, it is. That's yes. that's a cool grandfather. Did you cool know you wanted to be a writer? Like, did that? Did he at all inspire that, or or no? Had to have. Uh, Had to have. Even just, if I'm not like explicitly like there, right. I stood in his study, like ho- holding the pen that I would someday hold. You know, it wasn't like that. But yeah, I, you know, my mom's a, a writer as well. My okay. aunt is a writer, and I think you know, just like you mentioned, Brighton Beach Memoirs, like seeing that play, which is of all of his work, not all of his work, but like that trilogy is super autobiographical. You know, and it's a lot about becoming a writer. And I saw that at a very impressionable age and not just seeing it, but like seeing it on Broadway, like with all the glitz of like that, it just, you know, made it emphasize the, every writer I think at some point has to have some intoxication with the, the allure of that, that Mm -hmm. life. But I think for me, yeah, like I was, I was sort of deeply infected with that from a pretty, pretty young age. So cool. Cool grandpa. Um, grandpa. Yeah, cool. What What's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Exercise, Ooh. which is embarrassing because that's like a pretty common word. But there's something about the, the C and the X and the S yeah. and the absence of a Z. Yeah, sure. I get it. I'm a terrible speller. I get it. I get it. Um, I have a word that I can't type, mm. which is a word that I type constantly, which is episode. Mm. I always flip. I end up with Epis dough. I just uh-huh. put the D in the wrong spot all the time. Um, but it's like a word that's so common in my life and I can spell it. Like I know yeah. how to spell it. I just do it wrong all the time. And that one always is a pain in my ass. Funny uh, thing about blindness and spelling is that, you know, there's all these debates about like if you, because Braille is a pain in the ass to learn. It's really hard. Right. Um, and a lot of blind people who become blind later in life just don't even bother because like, or maybe they just learn enough to like label a, 
uh, a spice jar. But some people argue that like if if you only use a screen reader, you're only listening to language. Then oh yes, it's not true literacy, and you won't know that. Um, you know, pseudoscience is spelled with a P. And uh, it's interesting to me as somebody who like has always cared really deeply about not just like books and literature, but like the little minutia of literature mm-hmm. and like I geek out over an italicized versus an unitalicized comma and I think things like that. Um, so like the, yeah, the question of like how words are spelled and spelling is sort of a tricky one for 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 blind people. And it's interesting, like once I started using the screen reader, I noticed I had fewer typos because like the I, the, whether it's whether you're visually impaired or not, like it's easy to miss the espidode versus episode, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just sort of like a mm-hmm. subtle thing. But when you're listening to it and you hear espidode, you know, you're like, eh, that's not right. Yeah. So like, I definitely got fewer typos going once I started using a screen reader. That's so interesting. Um, so we're recording this before your book is out in the world. So I will not ask you some questions that I ask people once the book is out, but it's out today, actually. It's out today. Well, the day yeah. we're recording, but when people yeah, are yeah. listening, it'll be this coming out in August. So, right. Okay. So gotcha. it'll be out in the world by then, everyone. Yeah. But it's uh, congratulations. Happy Pub Thank Day. Um, what comes next for you? Do you know? Do you have a plan? Or are you like, leave me the fuck alone? My book just came out today, you asshole. Because <laughs> that's no, allowed I mean, too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have like a plan. I should have a plan because it's coming soon. You know, I think I can only expect to be allowed to like promote my book and have that be my job for so long before Mm -hmm. I need to make more money and uh, do something with myself. But um, while I was writing the book, I, I did some other freelance pieces that I really, really enjoyed doing. Like I did a piece about deafblind communication um, and like, and sort of branching out into writing about other disabilities, but still from this sort of like cultural social angle that, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and also just like feeling really good about, following my curiosity. Like that's the amazing thing about non being a nonfiction, like n- writing narrative nonfiction is you can just be like, there is a troubling, confusing, fascinating <laughs> thing. And ideally somebody's going to pay me to now like spend six to 12 weeks, just like immersing myself in it. Right. Um, and so that's been a really gratifying experience, both doing like podcast and radio stuff, but also magazine. I would love to keep doing that work. And I have like a bucket of ideas that while I was writing the book, I was, you know, just like immersing myself in these disability spaces. I would, I would encounter these people or these ideas. And so now I'm finally like in September, I think going to have a chance to take that bucket out of the closet and, and fish around in it and see if there's anything that that's still good. And, and there's still a question too of like, are those just a series of magazine stories or is that, do they hang together enough for it to be a book? And mm. so I'm going to really figure that out too. Cool. For people who love the country of the blind, what are some other books you might recommend to them? Um, I have to immediately recommend Georgina Kleeg's writing. Uh, she is a blind writer, recently retired from UC Berkeley, another Bay Area, uh, Bay Area blindness um, representation. But um, she, I think for a lot of blind writers and readers, is just like a really important figure. Um, her book, Sight Unseen, was very important for me in the way that she wrote about her own blindness. But the way I tried to do, like using that experience as a as a starting point rather than just a, you know, dwelling in what the experience is and, and thinking about um she like watches movies and, and goes to museums and 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 thinks about representations of blind people and it's just and she's funny and um, brilliant. And yeah, uh, and she has a book specifically all about blindness and art called More Than Meets the Eye that I also really love. And a book called Blind Rage, Letters to Helen Keller. That's a lot of, that's like that's what it sounds like. It's sort of creative nonfiction uh, written to Helen Keller and sort of angry letters to Helen Keller sometimes because as a blind um, child growing up, she was constantly being compared to Helen Keller and mm. sort of like frustrated with the Helen Keller myth. And, and the book also tries to do research and, and like capture the Helen Keller that that's sort of the real Helen Keller behind all the sort of mythologizing that happens around her. Um, you want more or is that enough? Up to you. If you have more, if you have some that you feel like people should definitely read, yes. Yeah, well, I got I got one more, which okay. is um This is a book podcast. So we we take all book yeah. recommendations around here. <laughs> so one of the people who I encountered in writing the book who who really only shows up glancingly, but um I wrote about him in this New Yorker piece I mentioned, but his name is John Lee Clark, and he's a deaf-blind poet in Minnesota. And he has a 
collection of poems that came out this year called How to Communicate. And he's got an, an essay collection that's coming out at the end of this year. Um, both of those books are from Norton. And he, you know how in, in the UK, you can like bet on anything? Like you can mm-hmm, place, mm-hmm, place mm-hmm. I, I, if, I, if I had to put money down at like Lad Brooks or whatever on who's going to win a MacArthur Genius Grant in the next like three years, I would put it on John Lee Clark. I think he's just like, just like some of the stuff that we talked about, about like, just decentering and like reframing your thinking around like what an accommodation is or what disability is like this guy, he just writes against the grain in a way that like every time I read him, I like, you know, sit up for my chair and I'm like in a different part of the room without realizing how I got there. Mm. Kind of a feeling. Uh, so really recommend John Lee Clark's essays and his poems. Okay. Last question. If you could have one person dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be? Huh? So there's a scene in the book where I'm walking down the street in New York City with my cane and I catch the eye of this guy. And this is like kind of early in my life as a cane user. And I can see he's got this like mean look. Mm-hmm. And then he he like looks me up and down. He goes, you can see. <laughs> right. And I just felt, it just like really punctured me and bummed me out. And I feel like if he read the book, he would, I don't want him to read it to be like, oh, I hurt that guy's feelings. Like, and I feel so bad. Cause like, he seemed like the kind of guy who knew he was hurting my feelings and didn't right. care. <laughs> right. But more just like, if you, you know, part of your thought experiment means I get to like force him to actually read the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, he would come away with it with an appreciation for the experience of blindness and the, the way that blindness is a spectrum. And that my experience of using a cane and walking through the world with some sight was a legitimate one, an important one for me. Uh, I would like that guy to to think about that for a little while. I wish we could find him now. Um, <laughs> he's probably I still at that deli. I can tell you the deli. Yeah, he probably hangs out there all the time. <laughs> well, Andrew, this was so great. Everyone, you can get your copies of The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight, wherever you get your books. As I mentioned, the audiobook is fantastic. Andrew narrates it. I think this is going to be a book that people are talking about for the whole year. So please read it. Uh, so that you don't feel left out later when we're all talking about it. Um, thank you so much, Andrew. Your questions were amazing. I guess I'm not supposed to say that as somebody who just got to be interviewed by you, but this thank was just you. like ridiculously fun. <laughs> and uh, I had thoughts that I didn't have before, which I think is the sign that it was a good one. So thank you uh, so much for this. I'm really grateful. That makes me so happy. Thank you so much. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Andrew Leland for being our guest. I'd also like to thank Juliana Kean for helping to make this conversation possible. Don't forget to listen on August 30th and Sam Sanders return to discuss You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty by Equipgate and Mezzi for the Stacks Book Club. If you love the show and you want inside access to it, head over to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks or if you listen to your podcast. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, Threads, and TikTok, and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And you can check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tegira Gist. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 